Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, this morning we are continuing in uh, the parables of Jesus in our series that we have been in, Parables of Jesus, and uh, now we're in Matthew chapter 24. As you see up there on the screen, it's the parable of the fig tree is what we're, what we're really looking at. We're actually going to look at this parable over the next couple of weeks, and as we get into the message, you'll, you'll find out why. Um, but, but this, Matthew chapter 24, is uh, famously known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and this has to do with uh, looking towards the end times. And this is Jesus' teaching on that. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse and, and work through what is he trying to say here? What, what, what is happening in this text? And what does this teach us, particularly about the end times. What does this teach us about that? So Matthew chapter 24 this morning, we're actually going to begin in verse 23. So if you want to you know, turn the page there or just make sure that you're there, um, certainly if you have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to open that however you have that. You have it on your phone, you have a physical copy, tablet, whatever it might be. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's Word, and I think it's super important that you are also able to look at God's Word as I point you to the text and as we read that together. Um, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open that. If you don't have a copy and bring one today, bring one next week. Um, God's Word is our authority, and it is what we want to base our ministry and our lives off of. Um, and if you need a copy of God's Word, be happy to give you a copy. I have plenty of those around here um, so we can find you a copy. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we are going to dive in to this message today. Dear God, we thank you for this day, uh, opportunity to gather together, Lord, uh, as the church, to, to be the church with one another as we uh, sit underneath the preaching of, you know, of the Word. Um, and so, God, we ask that as we do this, as we, we walk through this text this morning, as we walk through this text over the next several weeks, Lord, that you would help us to have a good understanding uh, of it and be able to apply it to our lives. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when is the world going to end? When is the end of the world? That is a question that people have been asking for a very, very long time. When is the world going to end? And there have been many books written over the years about this question as well. A book that, that you may have heard of. There are so many books, but, but one book that you may have heard of, it made news several years ago. It ended up being you know, on Amazon's bestsellers list for a while as a book by John Hagee, Four Blood Moons. And this book is centered around four blood moons that took place back in 2014 all the way up to 2015. And, and through this book, he is really exploring, you know, what, what, do, these mean, what do these moons mean? What, do they, what, what, is it, what does it point to? Um, certainly there is some sort of end times uh, flavor to the book. He doesn't ultimately tell us, you know, what do these events point to um, exactly, you know, what is going to happen, you know, dates and times or anything like that. Um, but, but it does have some end times uh, pointers in the book. It has an end times flavor to the book. It has to do a lot with America and a lot with, with Israel and, and this big event that's supposed to take place when these moons uh, finally reach their, their climax. As I mentioned, it was quite popular, Amazon's bestseller list, but, but books and ministries like Hagee's are, are popular because people really want to know 
the future, especially when the end is coming. But, but our insatiable desire to know the future ends up resulting in a, a lot of speculation. And I believe that's what, what Hagee's book is, right? It's, it's a lot of speculation about the future. There's a lot of assumptions that are being made. And, and just so we clear, I, I would not recommend or commend the book to you. Um, I, I would critique the book and his view of the end times. But when it comes to the end, we don't, we don't have to speculate. Jesus tells us what we can expect, what we can look forward to, right? We don't, we don't need an Amazon bestseller. What we need is God's Word. What we need is the primary text of Scripture. And as we turn to the Bible, to our next parable in the series, we learn a number of things about the end times. The next parable in the series is, as I mentioned, the parable of the fig tree. And it begins down in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 24. And so let, let's read the parable, and then we will re- then we'll keep going and return back to the end of Matthew 23. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, and that's, that's a key phrase, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Jesus compares his coming uh, of the kingdom, bringing the kingdom to the lesson that we learned from the fig tree. Now, I don't own a fig tree, um, but, but apparently, you know, you can tell when seasons are going to change from the fig tree, particularly when summer is coming, when its branches become tender, when its leaves begin to bud. You know that, that summer is near. It is right there. Likewise, we're told in verse 33 that when all these things take place, you know that the end is near. You know that Jesus is at the very gates about to return. But here's the question, what does, what does all these things mean? And to answer that question properly, we've got to look at the context. And, and as we've talked about many times in the past, context is key. Context, context. If I can't stress anything, if you don't take anything away from today's message, take this away. Read the Bible in context. Do not just take one scripture and read that scripture and make that scripture your life first and, and do everything according to that one scripture. You have to read the Bible in context. Chapters, books, the entire Bible. You have to read the Bible in context. And context is key, and there's a great example of that right here. Context is key. We would have no idea what all these things mean unless we know what the context is teaching us. And so what does the context teach us? And this is what we're going to explore over the next several messages. We're going to walk through chapter 24, and we're going to eventually get down to the fig tree. Then we're going to, we're going to go past that to a couple other parables that you will see that, that take place after that. But if we don't understand the context, if we don't have a good grasp of what Matthew chapter 24 is talking about, then we're not going to understand the parable of the fig tree. We're not going to understand any of the parables that come after that. And so we need to go back to Matthew 23. We need to look at the end of that. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And while Jesus talks about his return, he does not talk about it necessarily in positive ways here. This is a condemnation of Israel. Israel is going to be left desolate. And as we move into chapter 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. So beginning in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them. You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so at the end of chapter 23, the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus is making some some huge claims here to the people and to his disciples. Israel, God's chosen nation, they were going to be left desolate. Jesus says, I am going to return to you one day. He's already predicted his death several times, and he's saying, I am going to return. And the temple, which is like the center of all religious life to Israel, the place where where God's presence is, uh, is going to be destroyed and all of the stuff around it is going to be destroyed i mean these are major significant claims that jesus is making claims that his disciples hear him making claims they ask him about as soon as he takes a seat on the mount of olives so look at verse three the disciples come to him privately saying tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so the disciples want to know, when is all this stuff going to take place, Jesus? When's it going to happen? They want to be prepared. They want to know what to look forward to. And wanting to know when the end is going to come is is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It, It is a universal question that many people have been asking forever. It's something that we all want to know. We want to know, like, if we have a job, when is our job going to end? When is the service going to end today? My kids want to know that, right? Dad, we pray that your message will be short. Every night they pray that, right? Um, So they want to know, when is the service going to end today? When a difficult season, we're going through a difficult season in our life, we want to know, when is this difficult season going to end? When can things go back to normal for us? The age, the question that we're all asking right now is, when is COVID going to end? When can life return fully back to normal and we don't have to worry about getting sick? When is COVID going to end? And even we're asking, when is the world going to end? We want to know when the end is coming so that we can be prepared for the end. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Jesus doesn't see this question as wrong or simple. Jesus actually entertains the disciples' question. In his Olivet Discourse, he reveals the events that will signal the destruction of the temple. He reveals the events that are going to signal his imminent return. And why does he tell us these things? Well, in verse 4, so that we won't be deceived, so that we will not be led astray. This is why Jesus is telling us these things. He doesn't tell us so that we'll, be pu- that we'll puff ourselves up with some sort of insider knowledge. He doesn't tell us these things so that we can speculate like, like many other authors do. He tells us these things so that we won't speculate. He tells us these things so that we don't have to play the assumption game. He tells us what to look forward to, and what Jesus tells us is really all that we need to know. In his Olivet Discourse, Jesus reveals those activities that will signal the end. But he also reveals those activities that will not signal the end. And it's important that we're able to distinguish between everyday events and apocalyptic events, or we are going to be led astray as followers of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. Those everyday events and activities that don't necessarily signal the imminent return of Christ, 
so that we are not led astray when they occur. And there are six activities we're going to look at uh, that don't signal the end. So be clear, these are six activities that do not signal the end. The first activity that does not signal the end is the appearance of false messiahs. Look at what Jesus says in verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And this, that for is an explanatory for. It is telling us what we need to look out for so that we are not led astray. Jesus tells us that after he leaves, we can expect a number of people to come on the scene who are claiming to be the return Christ, who are claiming to be the Messiah. And when these people come on the scene, we should not believe them. We should not listen to them. We should not follow them, he tells us. Instead, we should run from them because they are nothing more than a false Messiah. And it's not if these people are going to come on the scene, but it's when they come on the scene. And we've seen soon after Jesus' death, in the first century, there was already a person who came on the scene who claimed to be a Messiah by the name of Simon Magus. And there have been many more after him who've come on the scene to claim to be the Messiah, right? In, in our day, uh, we, we think about Waco, Texas, and, and David Koresh, right? And he claims to be, or claimed to be, the Messiah. And there have also been many other false messiahs. And Jesus, he, he warns us about all of these people. We should, we should take his warning seriously. We should be on guard. We, we should be watchful, not only seeking to protect ourselves, but protect those that we live in community with as the church. How can we do that? How can we protect ourselves and those around us from being taken by a false messiah? Well, the best way to protect ourselves is, is to be grounded in Scripture. I mean, if we are biblically illiterate, then there is no way that we are going to know whether this person who is coming and claiming to be the Messiah is actually the Messiah or not. But if we're biblically literate, we would have read through Matthew chapter 24. We would have seen Jesus' warnings claiming that, that there are going to be people who are going to come after me who claim to be the Messiah. Do not pay any attention to them. They are not the Messiah. As we'll get into next week, we'll see that, that you will know, you will know when Jesus returns. It, it will be clear as day when Jesus returns. Not only must we know Scripture, but we protect ourselves and others by living in community with one another. When Jesus talked about building His church, Jesus did not talk about building Lone Ranger Christians. That, that is not what the church is, right? The church is an assembly of believers who are gathered together around a common mission to make disciples, making disciples. And the best way to protect ourselves, the best way to protect others, the best way to grow as a disciple and to help others grow is to be in community with one another. But here's the thing, we can't exist in community with one another if we just come to church for one hour once a week on Sunday, we just leave out the back door as soon as the service is over, right? That, that's not being in community with another person. That's not seeking to be a disciple who makes disciples. That's just somebody who attends an event once a week. So let me just challenge you this. For your sake, for the sake of those that you have covenanted with here at East Ridge Baptist Church as a member, get involved in community. If you're not plugged into a class, if you're not plugged into a Bible study, if you're not plugged into a group of people that you're meeting with, plug in. Gather together with other people throughout the week as well. Have people over to your house. Go to coffee with somebody. Study Scripture with someone. Be in community with them. Exist on mission with them. If somebody is going to have an event at their house, and go to their house and, and do the event with them. 
Right? This is a good opportunity for you not only to serve them and to be in community with another fellow church member, but it's an opportunity for you to be able to meet their friends, to meet their neighbors, to be able to serve them and begin building relationships with them as well. You see, we have to start seeing our membership much more like being a part of a family that, that loves and cares for and supports and gathers together often with one another than being a ticket holder to an event that just takes place once a week. False messiahs, Jesus says, are going to come. And we need to be able to protect ourselves from those false messiahs by knowing Scripture and by gathering together in community with one another. False messiahs don't necessarily signal the end, but they will come and they will seek to deceive. Another activity that doesn't signal the end that could lead us astray is wars and rumors of wars. So look at verse 6 and beginning of verse 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You see, unrest is nothing new. Before Jesus' time, during Jesus' time, after Jesus' time, there have been many wars, there has been much unrest in the world, and there will continue to be rumors of wars, and there will continue to be wars until Jesus comes back. Today, there are so many countries that are at war with one another. There's so much conflict around the world that, that you know, you, you can't even really tell how much conflict is taking place. I tried to look up the number but the data was just really inconsistent. There, there's so much unrest. There's people who are entering into conflict and entering out of conflict just day and night with people that we really cannot understand how many nations are at war with one another, how many people groups, how many little factions, how many groups are warring. It, it is impossible to keep up with all of the unrest that is taking place in the world. And Jesus tells us that all this unrest, even though it looks like things are unraveling, he says, doesn't mean that the end is here. Wars and rumors of wars have always been a part of the world landscape. They will continue to be, which is why they're not a, they're not a signal to the imminent return of Christ. Along with wars and rumors of wars, we learn that famines and, and earthquakes are two other activities that don't signal the end that, that could lead us astray. Jesus says at the end of verse 7, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And Jesus tells us in verse 8 that these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I don't, I don't personally know the pain of labor. Uh, despite what the world tries to tell us, men cannot have babies at all, right? This just can't happen. Um, but I have personally been there at the birth of, of both of my sons. I've watched my wife go through labor pains. I've been there when the labor began. They, they started well before the delivery happened. And as labor progressed, they got more intense, but, but they started way in advance of the actual delivery. And while famines and earthquakes are here today, while they, while they make it look like the world is unraveling, these events don't necessarily signal that the end is imminent. They're pointers to the end. They, they, they will most likely, as you see here in the text, they will most likely intensify as the end gets closer, but they are not necessarily signals of the imminent return of Christ. And when I say the imminent return of Christ, I mean like he's about to come. He's at the gates. He's about to come out and come into this world. 
They're not necessarily a signal of the imminent return of Christ. Instead, they're a product of the fall. You see, when Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God in the garden, when they rebelled against Him, they felt the effects of sin. And the world feels the effects of sin as well. And famines and earthquakes, they're the product of the sinful world in which we live. When we look out at the world landscape, when we see unrest, when we see famines, when we see natural disasters, we should not be discouraged when Jesus doesn't return. That doesn't mean that, that we don't long for Jesus' return. We certainly long for Jesus' return when we see all of these negative things that are taking place in the world. But we should not be discouraged if He does not immediately return after one of these events. Instead, what we should do is we should continue to endure by focusing on the time of joy that is coming in the future. We talked about the feast in, in the past here. And this feast that we talked about uh, last week was, was really pointing to the time where we are gathered together with one another in the kingdom of God, feasting with Jesus our Savior around the table. And that time will come. Just as when my wife experienced labor pains and it, it got more intense and intense and intense until she gave birth to our boys. But there was joy after that. You know, even though those pains were, were agonizing, she would say, I know, that every last moment of that was all worth it for the joy of holding our kids in her arms for the first time. And I'm sure that if you're a mother here today, you would say, the same thing. And for those who are believers, a time of joy is coming. A time of joy is coming where we'll be able to run into the arms of our Heavenly Father, and then we will experience all of the joys of the kingdom to come. But that's not now. Now we endure with an eye towards the future, remaining encouraged instead of discouraged, remaining hopeful instead of allowing someone to deceive us into thinking that the end is not coming because of all of these things that are happening in the world and Jesus has not returned yet. Jesus says these things don't necessarily signal His imminent return. And so we don't get discouraged. We continue to look forward to Jesus' return and to that time of joy in the garden when we are able, in, in the kingdom to come, in the new garden that will be recreated where we are sitting with Jesus around the table feasting and celebrating. To move on in verse 9, Jesus reveals another activity that doesn't signal the end but could lead us astray, and that is hatred and persecution of Christians. And so look at what Jesus says in verses 9 and 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So starting with Jesus' ministry, in every age thereafter, Christians have faced hatred. Christians have faced persecution because they follow Jesus. Persecution takes many forms. It may be, you know, people are making fun of you. It may be people beat you up. It might be that you lose your job or you lose your influence in the community. Uh, it could be a number of different things. It could be that, that you are killed for your faith. All because you follow Jesus. And Jesus says, look, this is not anything that is going to change. Nor does it mean that the end times are, are here. Persecution is the norm. Persecution is unavoidable for Christians. And since that is the case, we must prepare for it. We must expect it to take place, especially as the United States moves further and further 
toward a secular worldview. Jesus reveals that persecution will drive many to denounce the name of Christ. You see, it's easy for us to claim to be a follower of Christ when things are going well, when things are easy, when, when everybody likes us, but it's another thing entirely when it will cost you your business, your friendship, your family, your relationships, or even your life. We're seeing this happen in the United States right now, right? It used to be popular to say that I'm a Christian. It used to give you standing in the community to say that, that you're a Christian. It used to be expected that you attended church every single week, and this gave rise to cultural Christianity. But cultural Christianity is, is no more. It is, it is on its way out. And in many places in the United States, it is already on it. It is already out. And this is why we see a decline in our churches all throughout the United States because cultural Christianity is on its way out. And so those people who were not really believers, those people who were just connected to the church for their own benefit, they're no longer connected to the church because it doesn't benefit them anymore. In many places in the United States, to, to be a Christian is actually more of a hindrance than to claim that you're not a Christian. Whereas in the past, it used to be opposite of that. To say that you were not a Christian, to say that you were not a believer in anything, that you were an atheist or a nun, uh, that, that, that did not result in any sort of good standing in society. But, but now it's just the opposite. And so we can expect hatred and persecution to continue to come. While persecution is terrible, though, I believe that persecution should bolster our faith. I don't know if you've noticed, but, but generally people are pretty okay with other religions. They, they will go out of their way, they will bend over backwards to accommodate many other religions, but they do not do the same for Christianity. And I think that's because they see something different in Christianity, something that challenges them and they don't like it. And I believe that we all can relate to that. Right before I, was, before I was a believer in Christ, uh, I, I didn't want to hear the Christian message. I didn't want people coming to me and, and confronting me with that because it meant that something needed to change in my life. It meant that I wasn't as good as I thought that I was. It meant that I could not work my way to heaven and that I wasn't just going to be accepted for being a good person. I didn't want to hear that message. And many people in the world do not want to hear that message as well. And I believe that we all can relate. You know, there, there's bad news before you get the good news. And the bad news is, is that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short. We all need a Savior that we cannot save ourselves, that there's nothing that we can do to save this world. No amount of technological advances or anything like that is going to magically create this utopia of a world in which everything is right. The only thing that is going to save us, the only thing that is going to save the world in which we live, the only way that we're going to be able to live in a perfect kingdom again is through Jesus. That's the only way that that is going to take place. And that rubs against us. And that's the bad news. But the good news is, is that Jesus has come. Jesus has, has come to this earth as we're reading about His ministry here in Matthew chapter 24 and His preaching. Jesus has come and Jesus has paid the price for our sins. Jesus has taken our debt on Himself. He has, he has died in our place so that we might be able to have a relationship with the Father so that the world in which we live, the corrupt world in which we live, might be able to be made new again. 
And Jesus promises us that when he returns indeed, the world will be created new again. Indeed, as believers, even now we are able to accomplish our purpose in life, which is to glorify God. We can experience meaning. We can experience hope. We can, we can experience all of those things that we long for, that we seek after in the world that ultimately fail us and let us down. Jesus will not let us down. We have what we long for in Christ. And so there is good news amidst the bad news that we can have salvation. And we can have that in Christ, in Christ alone. And so we are to live as people of the kingdom, of the kingdom to come. We're free from the bondage of works and self-actualization. We are freed by the wonderfully good news of the gospel. And so persecution is going to come. It's going to happen. Jesus promises it. But I believe it should bolster our faith. It should cause us to be firm in our belief instead of falling away from that. We should expect that. And we should expect that from a world who hates Christ and who wants to save themselves and not humble themselves and admit that it is Christ who must save us in the world in which we live. Another activity that doesn't signal the end but can lead us astray is the appearance of of false prophets. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and they will lead you astray. Just like false messiahs have been around since after Jesus came, false prophets have been around even before Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus tells us their activity is going to continue and their, 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 their goal, their job is to lead us astray. And they will lead many astray, he says here. I mean, take Joyce Myers, for instance. She has a book out entitled, How to Hear from God. And in it, she tries to teach exactly what the title suggests. How can you hear from God? And she claims that we can hear from God on a one-to-one -one basis every single day if we would just open ourselves up to hearing from God. Now, if you read the book, it sounds good. She even uses some scripture, although scripture out of context. Remember, context is key, but she uses scripture. And if we are not a discerning believer, if we don't know God's Word, if we're not biblically literate, then we might believe her message. We might believe that we can hear from God on a one-to-one -one basis every single day. But if we believe that, we would be wrong. God does not speak to us and tell us things on an every single day basis like she claims in the book. Instead, God speaks to us through His Word. He tells us how we are to live. He tells us what we should do. He gives us wisdom and insight in His Word. And so if what you believe that God wants you to do is where you could actually go with what she is teaching, I'm hearing from God and He's telling me that I need to get divorced from my husband because I just don't like him anymore. Well, you go to God's Word and guess what? It does not say that you should do that. And it can lead us down a very dangerous path if we just believe that God is speaking to us individually without checking what we believe that God wants us to do, what we believe that is being impressed upon our heart with God's Word. If what we believe God is impressing upon us is right and good and aligns with God's Word, great. But if we're hearing something, if we're just trying to open ourselves up to God to speak to us on an everyday basis and we're expecting Him to tell us something every single day, I don't think that's what we need to be doing. We need to be spending time in God's Word. We need to be learning God's Word. God is speaking to us every single day 
from his word. And we can know and we can trust that it is actually his word that we are getting. So we have to be careful. We have to be discerning. We can't allow false teachers to deceive us because their message sounds amazing. It sounds great. And some of these people that are writing books, these people who have television programs and all of that stuff, they are very, very good at what they do. Their messages are slick. Their presentations are great. They're, they're amazing public speakers and writers. And they can draw you in very quickly. And so we have to know God's Word. But here's the thing. False teaching is not just an end times activity. It is going to occur in every age all the way up to the end. To be sure, will there be false teachers as Jesus is about to come? Yes, of course there will be. May some of their false teaching intensify? Possibly. But there will be false teachers all the way up to when Jesus comes. And if we don't understand that, then we'll easily be deceived. And so we don't just look to the future to say, oh, there's some false teachers. Okay, maybe that's when Jesus is going to come. There's no false teachers now. No, they're, they're in every single age, and we have to constantly be on guard for that. And just when we see false teachers, and Jesus doesn't come, well, we shouldn't get frustrated. We should know they will be there in every single age, and we must be people of the book who test everything that we hear against Scripture. The last activity that I'm going to mention that doesn't signal that the end is here, that could lead us astray, is increased lawlessness. Jesus says in verse 12, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will be called. So as false prophets come, false prophets are going to lead us astray, and the result uh, is going to be lawlessness, right? False prophets never lead you towards following God in a biblical way. False prophets always lead you away from following God in a biblical and right way towards following Him in a way that is sinful and lawless. They lead you towards lawlessness. And as prophets come, lawlessness will increase. To be sure, it seems from the text here that more lawlessness will take place as we grow closer and closer to the return of Christ. But lawlessness takes place in every age. I believe a prime example of that that is raging right now in, in politics and the media and everywhere is the abortion debate. Right? Because of technological advancements, we know and we are able to see that a baby is developing in the womb. We know what is growing is not just a, a clump of cells, but is an actual person. And even though the science, as everybody touts, the science reveals that there's a person in the womb, there's an ever-increasing hostility and callousness and coldness towards the unborn. And that's the result of lawlessness. It's a dismissal of God's Word. It's a dismissal of His will. It's a dismissal of His values. Instead of sacrificing for their baby, would-be mothers sacrifice him or her on the altar of self-love. Now, to be sure, that is not always the case. Many women, they feel as if they have no other choice in the matter. They're shocked at the news. They're abandoned by their boyfriend. They're abandoned by their family. And in some sense, it's a failure of the church as well for not caring for those who've gotten pregnant out of wedlock, for despising them instead of extending grace and mercy and care to them. But those who are at the center of the debate, those who are lawmakers, those who are activists, those who are out there holding up the signs, you know, it's my body, there's a callousness that has taken place. There's a coldness that has taken place. There's a self-love that has taken place. There's a rejection of God and His values. There's a lawlessness 
that is running rampant. But Jesus tells us even though we see this, even though we experience this, the end isn't here. Lawlessness has taken place in every single age. And we should expect it. We should know the results of this lawlessness is not going to be an increase of love and peace. Instead, it's going to be an increasing coldness towards others. An increase of love of self and not a love of others. It's going to be a coldness that takes place. That doesn't mean that lawlessness will not increase as the end nears. But lawlessness in general does not signal the imminent return of Christ. And it's important we understand that because we might be looking for Christ as lawlessness is taking place all around us. And we might get frustrated in that Christ is not immediately returning. So we have to understand that lawlessness does not necessarily signal the imminent return of Christ. And so those are the six things that don't signal the end but can lead us astray. And in every age, Christians will experience these six things. Many of them will challenge us personally, especially those dealing with persecution and people coming against us. Jesus knows that. He knows these things will tempt us towards frustration or or giving up the faith altogether. And so to strengthen us, Jesus tells us that we are to endure and proclaim. And this is my last point today. In verse 13, he tells us that salvation is waiting for those who endure till the end. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, he tells us. And Jesus encourages us here, press on. Do not be deceived against false teachers. Do not be deceived against these six activities that don't necessarily signal my imminent return. Instead of caving and following the crowd, instead of being deceived by false teachers, instead of allowing our persecutors to win, Jesus says we are to endure. We are to stand firm. That includes now and that includes even in the end as we've been studying through the book of Revelation and in Scott's class, the truth seekers, we've, we've looked at time and time again through the, through, the, through the churches of Revelation there at the very beginning that we are to endure. And those who endure are the ones who are victorious. They are the ones who enter into the kingdom. You see, there's a race that we are running and we must finish the race. We must cross the finish line. It's not enough just to be on the track and to walk off halfway there. If that's the case, you didn't, you didn't finish the race. You didn't win the race. You were not victorious. It doesn't matter if you were first out of the starting blocks and you ran halfway in first place and then you decided, I'm done. You're not victorious. We must endure until the end. We must continue to run the race. And while we are enduring, while we are awaiting His return, we should proclaim the gospel to all nations. Look at what he says in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus tells us while we are enduring, we are to be proclaiming. Instead of being deceived, instead of sitting idle, instead of worrying about what will happen to us, we are to endure. And as we endure, we are to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And as we consider Jesus' return, we see there are activities that will signal Jesus' return. We'll get into those next week. But there are also activities that don't necessarily signal the imminent return of Christ, but we need to be aware of them so that we are not led astray by their activity. Instead, what we are to do is we are to endure 
and we are to proclaim the gospel. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. And so don't get caught up in speculative end times teaching. Jesus is coming back, yes. I think we all can say that. Jesus is coming back. But as we'll see in this series, we don't know the exact time of Jesus' return. There are signals of His imminent return, of Him being at the very gates and returning right then. But we don't know the time. Jesus doesn't even know the time of His return. And there's no way that we will know if Jesus doesn't know. The second person of the Trinity, God Himself. What we know, and while we don't know the exact time, we should continue to endure and to proclaim. If we endure and proclaim, then we can be assured that when Jesus does return, we will enter into the kingdom with Jesus. We will enjoy everlasting life with Jesus. We will enjoy the fruits of the feast to come. So don't be led astray by these six activities that don't signal the end. Instead, proclaim the gospel to your neighbors and the community as you seek to live life on mission for Jesus, making disciples, making disciples of all peoples. And that's how you can respond this week, by purposing to do just that, by purposing to endure until the end, and by proclaiming the gospel to those around you. If you call yourself a believer, that is how you are being called to respond to this message. And if you wouldn't say that you're a believer here today, or maybe you're watching online and you wouldn't say, I'm a believer, but I'm interested in Christianity. And today I've heard the gospel and I believe the gospel. Now is an opportunity for you to turn to Jesus as your Lord and, and as your Savior, to submit your life to Him. And as you do, you will find meaning, you will find purpose, you will find freedom from, from bondage, and you will find hope and everlasting life in Christ. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray. Nathan's going to come in the worship team and we're going to sing one last song and this is an opportunity for you to respond to this message here today. And if today you leave here with questions and you want to talk more, I'd be happy to get together for coffee or lunch or whatever it might be or just chat in my office. I'm happy to do that. Just give me a call, send me an email be happy to get together with you to talk more about the hope that we have in Christ or to answer any questions that you might have. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather together as a church, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word to, to learn the truth, God. We thank you that you give us the truth. We thank you that, that, you, that you teach us in all kind of different manners of, of life. And here, as we look at the end times this week and for the next couple of weeks, Lord, we ask that, that you would help us, God, to understand what you would have us to understand from your word and that we would have hope in the world in which we live, even though it's a sinful world. We would have hope knowing that you are going to return, and that we would be a people who endure. We would be a people who continue to proclaim the gospel until you take us home, through death or through the return of Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.